0: Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. On a mission to bring the benefits of sport to kids everywhere. They go beyond technology to provide leaders with professional development and relationship building, and to work with sports based organizations to address issues of accessibility and equality. To learn more, find them at leagueapps.com or as League Apps on all of the social networks. Now, here's the host of the show longtime soccer broadcaster and voice of United Soccer coaches, Dean Linke.
1: Today marks the 50th anniversary of the passage of Title IX, the landmark legislation that ushered in a new era for women's sports across the country. On June 23, 1972, Title IX passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972. Title IX states, and I quote, no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And we are kicking off the show, talking Title IX, with Dr. Ariane Waite, an associate professor of sport administration at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her research is directed by a vision to increase opportunities for athletic participation and education. She is brilliant, and then she is brilliantly followed by the legend that is April Heinrichs, a former Tar Heel, a member of that 91 World Championship team, former head coach of the USA Women's National Team. She now works for FIFA, and she is another great beneficiary of Title IX. From there, we switch to Mark Lang, who coached high school in Tampa, but he married a Japanese woman and decided to live in Japan and coach soccer at the military institutions over in Japan. He's been doing it for a long time, and he is a breath of fresh air. I think you'll like hearing from Mark Lang. Ashu Saxwena, who is the head of the API coaching community for United Soccer Coaches, continues to push forward big-time personalities. Cab Hakim who is one of the main men behind Futsal America? Where you can find him at FutsalAmericaFC.com. And he firmly believes, as you will hear in his sentiment, that if more players played futsal, the U.S. would have more dynamic players like a Messi or a Pele or some of the greats. A really interesting take from Cab Hakim. And also a great take on his ties to a shoe and the API coaching community. And we end by meeting another exciting member of our 30 under 30 class, Cayman Stevens. That's our show. And it starts after this message from our presenting sponsor, League Apps.
0: We bet you didn't get into this business for the back office duties. That's why we created League Apps, the industry's leading youth sports management platform, so you can spend less time with busy work and more time doing what you love. League Apps provides organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast, presented by League Apps. Once again, here's the host of the show, Dean Linky.
1: Today is the day. Today, 50 years ago, Title IX happened. And today, we salute everything that Title IX has accomplished. And to do this, I reached out to Anson Dorrance. He is indeed a beneficiary of Title IX in the highest degree and he gave me two names to talk to. One was Dr. Arianne Waite, who's now at UNC. She started out on the West Coast. We'll get to that in a moment. And the other is the great April Heinrichs, who played for Anson Dorrance at UNC and was a star on that first world championship team in 1991. So we gladly kick it off with Dr. Arianne Waite, who's an associate professor coordinator, graduate sports administration program, co-director, the Center for Research and in Intercollegiate Athletics at the University of North Carolina, not too far down the road from Anson or me. And with that, we welcome in. Dr. Ariane Waite. Thanks for being on the United Soccer Coaches podcast.
2: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.
1: Okay, Dr. Waite, you heard me earlier talking about Anson Dorrance, a man who I know you've now spent some time with. He's a United Soccer Coaches Hall of Famer, an honor award winner, a U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer. And I think the greatest coach of any sport, any gender, said you know more about Title IX than anyone he knows. So can you share with us how you became so interested in or an expert on Title
2: IX? Well, that's incredibly generous and very much in the spirit of who Anson is as a person who sees potential and greatness, and everyone who is lucky enough to know him. So, thank you for that introduction. I became poignantly interested in Title IX actually when I met my husband, who was a collegiate wrestler. During that time, in the late 90s, early 2000s, many universities were slashing men's sports in the name of Title IX, and I felt guilty for my opportunities. I earned a track scholarship in college, and I felt so grateful to have been a beneficiary, to have earned a scholarship, and to have so many doors open specifically because of this law, but I also saw the decimation that was happening in the name of title IX, so i started to dig deeper and have since learned that title nine in no way is responsible for the sport cuts and it is a law designed to open doors and expand opportunities and that is the message i strive to champion through my research and consulting
1: well said so as you sit here today as we celebrate The 50 years of Title IX, what does it mean to you, Dr. Waite, and to all girls and women in sports?
2: I was talking with my dear colleague here at UNC, Barbara Osborne, who is a true Title IX expert and, and pioneer about how all of the Title IX celebrations that are going on around the country are so great, how wonderful it is to shine a light on the legislation But also how disappointing it is that most of the institutions who are celebrating Title IX are far from being in compliance. So as I think of what that 50 years means, I think of some of the Title IX pioneers, Bernice Sandler in particular, because I was lucky enough to get to know her. She's well known as the godmother of Title IX. And I wonder what she imagined the landscape would look like now, 50 years after the passing of the law. And I think in many ways she would be thrilled to see the participation numbers, to see what I saw the other day near up a large banner of a women's soccer player on a downtown skyscraper, to see girls and women empowered through sport. But I also think she would wonder why there is still such significant gaps in pay, professional opportunities, media exposure, and fan support. So it's definitely a moment to celebrate how far we've come, and also a moment to pause and think about why there still is so much left uh, to do. So
1: Dr. Wade, you just mentioned one leader. Who are some other, quote, leaders of the movement we should always remember, never forget, and why?
2: I tend to think of Title IX leaders in generations. There were the pioneers, Dr. Sandler, as I mentioned, Edith Green, Patsy Mink, and Birch Bay, who really got the ball rolling on this movement, the symbolic victory of Billie Jean King over Bobby Bobby Riggs, and that certainly strengthened the legislation, the momentum. These early pioneers really fought for opportunity. And as I mentioned, I was a 90s high school graduate, one of the beneficiaries of the pioneers. And initially, I know that I largely took my opportunities for granted, but had to fight for legitimacy for being worthy of these opportunities. I said I felt guilty about some of the things that were happening to men's sports at the time. I love that in our current generation, our young women in many ways take for granted their opportunities and legitimacy, which is amazing. They're now demanding equity. And and we're seeing a new generation of Title IX leaders. Tatiana McFadden, who fought for equal access text or curricular activities for students with disabilities. I put Mia Hamm as one of the, the amazing pioneers as well. Justin Siegel our mothers, our girl dads, and every person who chooses to be a consumer and advocate for women's work, I think is a Title IX champion.
1: We're so pleased to be kicking off this week's show talking about Title IX. April Hendricks will join us next to also put an exclamation point on Title IX. We begin with the very talented Dr. Ariane Waite, who's the Associate Professor at UNC, where she's also the coordinator of the Graduate Sport Administration Program and the Co-Director Center for Research in Intercollegiate Athletics. She also has many publications. Please check her out. Google her. She is fascinating. What should our young, rising female athletes need to know about Title IX, Dr. Waite? I think history lessons are always important Sometimes I feel like we're getting away from that with our younger generation. I believe we should remember how we got here and where we are. What's your message?
2: Absolutely. Before this law, women accounted for less than 10% of all medical and law school graduates. So- Our current students imagining that, I think, is one thing to ponder. Fewer than 4% of girls played high school sports. It was legal for schools to deny women classroom opportunities, to discriminate against pregnant students, and to retaliate against those who advocated for equality. Things that we now very much see as blatantly wrong were legal and common practice before this law came to be just 50 years ago, which, which really wasn't that long. So again, Title IX is a generation opener. It provides opportunities, it opens doors, and every woman and every man should be grateful for how it has moved this country forward in ways that makes us who we are today.
1: You know, For me, just so you know, I broke in in soccer as an intern in 1989 out in Santa Barbara with Anson Dorrance and the U.S. women's team that had Mia Hamm on it. April Heinrichs was on it. Julie Fowdy was on it. A lot of other great pioneers, Brandy Chastain. That was my first exposure. Hello, Dean. Here's, here's soccer and these amazing women. And ever since then, I have loved being in a seat calling women soccer. And now we know on the soccer side, It's now equal pay for the World Cup for the men and women, more television, more pro soccer teams. How does that make you feel?
2: I am so, so proud of our women's soccer leaders and advocates. The soccer movement is giving hope to all women and and men's traditional non-revenue sports. Soccer fans have shown up. We have leaders that have spoken up and demanded equity. And it's about time. (laughs) It's about time we got there. And I am so excited for a future where we see true equity, where we see women being paid what they should be paid for the work that they're doing. But I want to publicly say thank you and and bow down to all of these incredible women.
1: Now, as you analyze other women's sports outside of soccer, Dr. Wade, your thoughts about the impact of Title IX?
2: Interesting. There is a lot of miseducation and fallacies about Title IX. At the collegiate level where I primarily work, there are tiered sports that administrators have used to justify differential treatment. So Women's basketball and many of the sports that have headcount scholarship designations have been relegated to higher tier status than some of the other sports, which is great in some ways, but completely ludicrous in others. So one message that I would want to put forward is that Title IX compliance is holistic. So having the women's basketball team jet everywhere because the men's basketball team does this is a little bit short-sighted. There shouldn't be first tier and second tier programs. There should be equity between the totality of the men's program and the women's program holistically so that's one issue that I've seen is tiers of women's programs and also men's non-revenue sports who are getting not great treatment blame the women but really I think if we come together and really advocate for one another and advocate for consumers and people to support these incredible sports, everyone would be better off.
1: What other important issues for women in athletics are you working on and or Dr. Waite looking into?
2: I've been doing a better job of personally is being a very judicious consumer. Ultimately, the market drives action. And Armand's decisions, government legislation can help move the needle. And and we've seen that happen through Title IX. But that in combination with the market is where things can be really powerful. And we're starting to see that. We've seen the fans show up for women's soccer. And I personally am striving to do a better job supporting sponsors that support women's sport and going and financially and vocally supporting women's sport, so we get the media coverage that we should be getting and that there is additional equity between the major sports that we see dominate television and, and everyone else
1: so coming up april heinrichs will talk adamly about the fact about how Title IX has impacted her well beyond her playing days. The doors that have been opened because they were athletes and then companies looking at These athletes that also have good grades and are at great academic schools, like the University of North Carolina, you were also a superstar athlete, a heptathlete. As someone who calls track and field, I have mad respect for you, Dr. Waite. Can you put into perspective from where you sit now and you analyze how much you love your job, how being an athlete created this pathway for you?
2: Well, I absolutely am who I am because of my participation in sport. I transformed from a skinny young girl at the beginning of college who was decimated by a world champion in my first hurdle race to a strong 20 pounds heavier full of muscle fierce competitor by the time I was a senior and I really used that throughout my professional career not only knowing that i can become who i dream of becoming but also that doors will open when you work hard and you put in the work so i would echo what you mentioned and i've done a lot of research on this that participation in college sport in particular leads to industry opportunities our athletes at unc who have graduated in every demographic category, out-earn, are happier in their work life, have greater social support, greater job satisfaction because of their intense training and deliberate practice, getting feedback, honing their skills, getting beat down, failing over and over and over again, and persisting. So, Sport is a tremendous vehicle and I have been grateful every day for the opportunity I was given and I know that I would not have had it were it not for Title
1: IX. Speaking of everything that Title IX has done for you, can you walk us through your elevator speech of everything you've done in your career?
2: Sure. Well, I started running track at Utah, like I mentioned, and after finishing that, I wasn't quite ready to hang up my shoes and so an opportunity to train for the Olympic trials made itself available in Indiana. And the way to pay my way was to get a PhD. So that is how I got my PhD specifically to fund my running. That's when I really got interested in research and started consulting and really have done that over the last 16 years, which brought me to UNC. And while I've been at UNC, I've researched primarily the intersection between higher education and college sport and how sport is so incredibly educational. I compare it to music or dance, wherein people can come and study what they love and people view it as educational, whereas sport has commonly been viewed as other or extracurricular, where... For me personally, as I mentioned before, the lessons that I learned through track and on the field and in particular, the lessons that I would pair maybe a sports psychology class with what I learned on the track were the most educational by far. So that's where I am right now, looking a little bit at the governance of college sport and how we can facilitate greater educational opportunities and address some of the mental health issues we have because we're asking our athletes to do far too much
1: fascinating interview. As I also mentioned, you have published some impressive research data as well. What are some publications that people should look up?
2: Just finished a textbook not too long ago. We're doing the second edition Administration and in Intercollegiate Athletics. And one of my favorite other studies related to this is work that I did with a North Carolina Chapel Hill nonprofit called The Walking Classroom. They facilitate lessons via podcast while students are walking to get them more active through school. And so he did a study there that looked at the reality that students learn better while they're moving and they retain information after having active sessions. And so it's just an idea to get students active and continue to learn while moving.
1: Anson always gets it right. That's why he's a 22-time national champion head coach and a legend. He said your name right away and he was spot on. With that, I want to end with this as today is the day that we do celebrate Title IX. So just in your own words, Title IX and the celebration of 50 years means what to you?
2: Title IX is empowerment and opportunities for women to have the voice
1: that they have always had, but not necessarily the opportunities to use. Dr. Ariane Waite, as we celebrate 50 years of Title IX, thanks for being our kickoff guest on this week's United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. Thank you
2: so much, it's been a pleasure and, and so excited to learn from the other guests.
1: The next guest we can all learn from is the Hall of Famer, April Heinrichs. We get her take on Title IX after this message. Performance analysis is now recognized as having a crucial role to play in any coaching program. The United Soccer Coaches Performance Analysis Level 1 Special Topics Diploma will provide coaches with real-world examples of how analysis is being used to enhance the individual player development process and maximize team performance. Additionally, successful candidates will achieve level one accreditation as an applied performance analyst from the International Society of Performance Analysis of Sport. Register now by visiting the master course schedule on unitedsoccercoaches.org. As we already said, today marks the 50th anniversary of the passage of Title IX, the landmark legislation that ushered in a new era for women's sports across the country. On June 23, 1972, Title IX passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972. Title IX states, and I quote, no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And we are kicking off the show with two amazing guests. We already heard from Arianne Waite, an accomplished professor at the University of North Carolina. And speaking of North Carolina, arguably one of the greatest players to ever wear a Carolina jersey and wear a USA jersey is the legend that is the Hall of Famer April Heinrichs, who joins me now to also Talk about 50 years of Title IX. April Heinrichs, welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Oh,
3: thank you for having me, Dean.
1: My first camp with US soccer was with the US women as they were getting ready for the 91 World Championships over in China. It was the triple edged sword April Heinrichs, Karen Jennings Gabarro, Michelle Akers. And I fell in love with soccer because of you three. And Anson Dorrance as well, with an inspiring pregame speech. So I think it's only fitting as uh, you know we move forward, April, that you were on this show. And and by the way, you remember those days, right? Those were some epic days. I do. Yeah, of course. When you think about Title IX, one thing we'll never do is say your age, April, but you're right around 50. We'll just leave it at that. And Title IX celebrates 50 years. So as you think about it, uh, can you put into words what it's meant to you and your life and the life of so many other young girls and women?
3: I'll certainly try, Dean. When I reflect back, I think to myself, if I was five years older, I would not have played college soccer. I would not have played college basketball. I may not have gotten a college education because my family was very poor and I wouldn't have certainly gone on to do some of the things I did in soccer after college. And so I have been aware of Title IX's influence in my pathway. I certainly feel like Title IX, when you hear about it, you think that it was before your time, but it really was when I was about eight years old, by the way. But they didn't start enforcing it for many years. But in my pathway, I played high school soccer, basketball for girls on the girls team. So my high school actually had both soccer and basketball. I played all four years, but if I was two years older, that would not have been the case because there wasn't a high school soccer team previous to me by two years. The NCAA, as you know, switched over from an NAIA to division one status. I think that happened the year before I got to North Carolina. And so I also benefited from the fact that North Carolina went division one. And Anson started to have scholarships because my first year I was only on a partial scholarship and my dad said, yeah, you can, you can go there one year, but after that, we can't afford it unless Anson bumps you up, which he did. So there's two major influences in my life is title nine and soccer. Without either one of those, I would not be the person I am probably where I am and having had so many experiences in life. I mean, I've gone to the Olympics. I've been to every Olympics since 96. I've gone to World Cups. I've gone to Youth World Cups. I've literally had a career in sport, in soccer specifically. Since I got out of college, that wasn't a plan that I had in place. It all just sort of dominoed in front of me.
1: Well, and you also worked so hard. I mean, we're talking about you won college player of the year multiple times. You won national championships at North Carolina. You would go on to score a ton of goals. I think you have like, I think it was 36 goals in 45 games, something amazing, almost a goal a game for the U.S. national team. You went on to coach the U.S. national team. You coached collegiately. So I want to switch to that part, the coach part, because Now you get to influence all of these women years later that also benefit from Title IX.
3: Every generation is aware that the generation behind them had it a little bit easier, right? The equipment was a little bit better. The travel budget was a little bit better 10 years later, you know. So we're all aware that the generation behind us had a little bit easier. But I think in women's sports, we're also grateful for all the opportunities we've had because my generation, I think of my generation as the breadcrumb generation where somebody dropped the bread and we came in behind it and ate it and we benefited from that. And, you know, we weren't advocating for full-time salaries. That was not in, you know, even on our radar, but gosh, I, I just think about the opportunities we've had You know, I've also worked for the U.S. Olympic Committee. I'm currently working for FIFA. Like that that really wasn't on the the curriculum or the menu when you go to college and they say, what do you want to be? You know, Mm -hmm. and so at my age, I have literally professionally worked in soccer since I was about 24, 25, maybe.
1: Incredible. Yeah. And so exciting that you have that job at FIFA. One of the things that, as you think about 50 years of Title IX, you start to think of some of the faces of it. And, you know, as you mentioned, you were eight years old. I mean, Billie Jean King is somebody that pops to mind. I think you have a decent relationship with her, right?
3: I know her. She might remember me, but it's not like we're best friends, but I do follow everything she does because I think she's just amazing. Every tweet, every event, she's a leader for me. She's really sharp and really on top of everything. And we met her in in the 96 Olympics. Olympics. Funny story. There were two stadiums in the 96 Olympics for the opening. You know, the one where Muhammad Ali lifted the torch. Yeah. So they moved us from buses because of the traffic and the temperatures. They moved us from one stadium to the next. We were in holding at one stadium for eight hours with suit jackets on and scarves and nylons and high heel shoes and all that. Right. <laughs> and we were sitting next to Billie Jean King for those eight hours and talking her up and learning from her. And then when they finally put us into the other stadium and we started kind of rushing into the stadium for the opening ceremonies, she turns to me and she goes, my dogs are barking, which is you know, a metaphor for her shoes. Her feet were hurting as bad as all of ours after eight hours in that stadium. Just to see how open and how forward thinking she was. For those eight hours, it's like having breakfast with John Wooden. You treasure it. And I did have breakfast with John Wooden one time. So you treasure these moments, right?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you think about it, Billie Jean King has put her name behind soccer. And, you know, from where you sit and even from where she sits, the news of equal pay now for men and women, for U.S. soccer, for World Cups. You got to feel like Title IX played a role in that as well in some way, April.
3: Oh, gosh, for sure. Billie Jean King played a role in that. Julie Foudy. All the women that came in behind me, I have tremendous respect for what great advocates they are for what they want. I get a lot of people asking me about the lawsuit against U.S. soccer. And I start with this. I know a lot of the details, right? But there's things I don't know because I haven't been involved in collective bargaining agreement discussions for almost 20 years. But this is what I tell people that I do know. These women, in their twenties, some maybe in their early thirties, sued their employer while they're working for their employer. Think about that. That's brave, right? Committed. That's really brave. And not only did they do it, they did it for years and they stuck to their plan. They were really committed to the fact that this is the time. It's not, we're going to wait for five more years. My generation, bread we would have waited five more years. We would have been happy with what we have, but these women from Julie Foudy's generation, Mia Chris, and Lily right? All these players moving all the way up to Carly Lloyd and Alex Morgan and Becky Sauerbrunn. Every time they speak, I am in awe of how brave they are and how powerful and how they speak with such conviction. You can't deny them. Yeah, you can't deny them. You can't.
1: No, you can't. Ears are open and things are happening. And, you know, April Heinrich says, we close things out. For me, you opened my eyes to what hard work does you were one of the hardest working players I've ever seen a lot of times I know you were battling injuries that you didn't even tell people about which I always admired as well and perseverance and I admired you then and I admire you today and I think tying it together we're on the United Soccer Coaches podcast and one of the things I've loved about being their voice for so many years is how open they are I mean yeah particularly to to women right can can you touch on that as we celebrate 50 years of title IX?
3: Yeah. So my first coaching education course was with the United Soccer Coaches Association, circa 1987, 88. And I walk into this coaching course and I'm like, I've died and gone to heaven. If I'm not training with the national team or North Carolina, I'm going to go get my license because we're going to train with these guys. To learn the game in a progressive manner, like the United Soccer Coaches teaches and the care with which their instructors work with candidates like myself, the way to look at the game. you come out of college or the national team program. You don't know how to look at the game as a coach. You just know how to look at it the way you learn from your coaches. So they exposed me to a new way of looking at the game. And I was a really young coach. So it's just incredible. Yes. Only one female of 30 or 35 men there, which is still sadly true to some degree today. But we will make progress. We'll get this to a point where it's it's not equitable. It doesn't matter. We just want women to go and have the confidence to go. So I went and got my first national license with the NSCAA at the time. And as I said, it was in the 80s. And then I did my advanced national. And then I did my U.S. soccer and coaching education courses teach you things that you don't know as a player. And to be exposed at a young age is great.
1: Last word time, once again, today, this day, today, we celebrate 50 years of Title IX for all of the young members of the association and perhaps some of the young women that will listen because their coaches tell them to, what is your message to the young women about what Title IX means?
3: Title IX was legislation that was really intended for the education world so that women could go to academic institutions like Virginia and Duke and North Carolina and Stanford. But once people started to interpret the law a little bit more, we found out that sports at the federally funded academic schools, it also applied to that. And so by the mid-1990s, it was really being enforced. Then all of a sudden we had all these women going into coaching and we had much more scholarship. Girls could really dream of going to college, getting an education and being on a partial medium, full scholarship. The women's game just exploded. And I think it's over 300 schools now. Probably when I went to college, there might've been about 30 or 40 division one programs. Right. Now there's over 300 in division one, over 300 in D2 and over 300 in D3. That doesn't include NAIA. Think about all those players, athletes, coaches getting this experience, all of the opportunities around the country. Think about how the college game is a part of our player pathway that's unlike any other country around the world, right? It's also so broad because we have such a large geography and a large population of players. I can't imagine that when they created the legislation that they knew what it was going to do for so many female athletes, but boy, am I happy and I know. Everyone that's gotten in the boat behind us, my generation, they're appreciative too.
1: April Heinrichs, the GOAT, to me, the top of that triple-edged sword with Michelle and Karen, that triple-edged sword was amazing. Yeah. We ran with it. We're going to run with it forever, April. Thank you so yeah. much for having a say on Title IX and for being you, April. Thank you so much for being on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Uh,
3: thanks for inviting me. Really appreciate it. It's lovely to talk about how we got
1: here. Yes, we need to always remember that for sure. And I appreciate you saying that, April Heinrichs. When we return, we'll have Mark Lang, who is coaching soccer over in Japan on military campuses. Mark Lang, courtesy of our good friend John Mayer, is on the show after this message. This is Dean Linke, longtime college soccer play-by-play man, reminding all college soccer coaches to amplify your upcoming season with the United Soccer Coaches College Services Program. Register now for the 2022-23 season and gain access to valuable resources you can use all season long. From educational programming to general liability insurance, the list of member benefits is endless. Make sure your program gets the recognition they deserve through All-America, Scholar All-America, Staff of the Year, and Team Awards available for College Services members. Don't miss out. Early bird registration ends October 1st, so sign up today by going to unitedsoccercoaches.org. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Apps. a jam-packed show. Really excited about our next guest because he comes to us through John Mayer, who I'm a huge fan of. John Mayer does so much for the awards committee for United Soccer Coaches, and several weeks ago, he mentioned Mark Lang, who is a United Soccer Coaches member, who is coaching over in Japan, but he's actually coaching on military bases. I think we'll get that straight. But first, let me welcome Mark Lang to this week's United Soccer Coaches podcast. Great to be with you, Mark. Fantastic to be here. I'm really honored to be part of this program. Let's start with the fact that I mentioned John Mayer. I love that guy, and he was the one that suggested I talk to you. Obviously, you've got to know him a little bit. Can you just talked a little little bit about your relationship with him.
4: He's been fantastic. Very supportive of what we're trying to do. We're trying to get American students who live overseas, their dependents of U.S. military, active duty and contractors overseas. And a few years ago, I think it was maybe 2014, I reached out and I said, hey, I've got these kids. Is it possible to get them some recognition? And he said, of course it is. And so he has been very, very supportive. I think we've had at our school, at Little Perry High School in Iwakuni, Japan, I think we've had nine All-Americans through
1: our program. Yeah, that's a great number. And hopefully that will continue to grow. And one of the things John also said, and you kind of touched on it, you've actually won six team academic awards in a row. Can you put into words what that means? That's one of
4: our major goals every year. It keeps kids focused on grades and doing things they need to do so they can play. And that's really important. And I think if you set high standards, kids rise to the occasion. They always do that. They do. I always tell the kids before we're in a championship match or before we have these kind of goals, I said, someone's going to win the award and might as well be us. United Soccer Coaches sets very high standards, and we appreciate that, and we are led by those standards.
1: I do want to get into what it's like coaching children of admirals and generals, but before we get there, let me get your entire story, Mark. You know, where did you grow up? How did you get into coaching? When did you join United Soccer Coaches? Give me your elevator speech if you can. I'm a missionary kid. I grew up on an island in the Pacific. It's a small island called Palau.
4: So I lived there for the first 14 years of my life, lived in New Jersey, and then uh, moved to Tampa, Florida. And in 1981, they started high school soccer in Tampa, Florida. Some other kids talked me into coming out for the team. I was the backup goalkeeper. And then two years later, I was the head coach. And that was pretty much my coaching journey. I think I've coached now 31 seasons, one year with girls and 30 years with boys. I coached in the Tampa Bay Area, at Brandon High School and East Lake High School and Palm Harbor University High School. before moving to Japan as an exchange teacher and as an international school teacher, and then working for the military, I just finished 20 years working for the military and teaching overseas.
1: I'm big on Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point. What was the tipping point that said, hey, I want to move to Japan. I want to do this.
4: I have a vested interest. My wife is Japanese. And so that kind of gives me a little bit of a reason to go there. I love living in Japan. I love Japanese football. It's fantastic. Very technical. My goal wasn't to live for 20 years in Japan. My goal was to work for the military and move to Europe. That was my
1: goal. <laughs> okay, great. But you combine your love of soccer with your love of your wife with Japan and your love of being overseas and it's all worked out great, right? It's worked out great. Both my boys play college soccer. One played, the other one's playing
4: now. My oldest boy, it's really interesting. He didn't want to speak Japanese to my wife. And so I tricked him when he was a first grader. I put him on a Japanese soccer team and no one spoke any English and he had no choice. In our area, he actually ended up playing for, uh, we're in Hiroshima, near Hiroshima. So there's a J League team called San Freche Hiroshima. And he ended up playing for their youth team for a few years. So it's really interesting, you know, and to um, talk to other people who think about the game a different way. It's wonderful. Yeah, amen.
1: Yeah, well, we dropped names here. So tell us your boys' names and where they played collegially and where they are playing collegially in the case of one of your sons. So, my
4: oldest son, he started his collegiate career at Pacific, University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, and then he transferred to Northeastern University. And he played for Chris Gabani for the last two years. He played for Ryan Jordan the first two years, who's now at UCLA, I believe. My other son, Kai, at one point in time, his, sophomore, his junior year, he actually scored 85 goals in a season. It was unreal watching that kid score that many goals. It's hard to get recruited when you're overseas because it's easy for coaches here to go and simply go to the match and watch. So we have to send video and go to camps and do all those kinds of things. But he ended up going to the University of the Pacific and then he transferred for his junior year. He's a senior now at UNLV in Las Vegas, which he loves, by the way.
1: (laughs) All right, great. And just in case your older son does hear this and realizes you've not yet said his name, why don't you say his Uh, name too? I guess (laughs) That's important. His name is Gaku, G-A-K-U. Okay. And my Kai. Kai. Gaku <laughs> and Kai. All right. So now we got to know you a little bit better. But you know, it is amazing as I was talking to John Mayer, and and you already touched on the fact that, you know, you've recognized nine of your kids already. But one of the things he said that was so cool is you think about it, you're coaching like admirals' kids and generals' kids. And I mean, that's got to be fascinating, right? What's that like? How can you put that into words? I coach them all. I coach them all. And so
4: having an admiral's son is beneficial Some at times when we, we need something done. <laughs> like if you're sitting at the gate and three o'clock in the morning, you're trying to get back in and there's no military guard there. Just an email from the boy to the father takes care of things very, very quickly. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of cool. But we have kids, a lot of them, they get stationed for three years, usually on a military base. And so it's a huge rotation thing going on. And then a lot of the kids, have, some of them never played football before. And so I have to teach them from the basics. And then I have a couple who are very accomplished. But that really neat, neat thing about it is getting to play the other military schools and the international schools. Being a, a coach overseas, for example, I know that college coaches travel a lot. And my kids, we do 12-hour bus rides. <laughs> so... Where we're located, we're about 12 hours from Tokyo. There are three military bases in Tokyo. There's an army base, there's a navy base, and there's an air force base. And then there's an air force base further in Japan, in Misawa. Our closest military base that we play against is in Sasebo. It's a navy base about five hours away. So those are road trips. <laughs> you know, we're on a bus use sometimes. Uh, during COVID, we went to Sasebo. We played Sasebo, the Cobras. We played them six times, and we couldn't stay overnight. So 3 o'clock in the morning, get on the bus, five-hour ride, play two matches, get on the bus, and we're home by, you know, 10,
1: 11, 12 at night again. So kind of tough. And you kind of led to it, but one of my questions was, how do you schedule? Who do you play? Can you break that down even deeper for us?
4: Yeah, so on mainland Japan, we've got those six schools. So we we play each other, and one thing we uh, have is we have a a Pac-East tournament, and it's kind of like our district tournament. And so Perry usually hosts it. The last one we had was in the Tokyo area. So those six teams play each other for that. Then we have a regular season. And before COVID, we would play in the Western Japan Athletic Association. And so we would play Kyoto International University, Canadian Academy, which is in Kobe, Maris Brothers. There are some other schools that we would play. And every now and then we would play a Japanese side as well. And so we have an athletic director who does the scheduling for us. That's how they take care of things. But a lot of it has to do with, you know, buses. We have a bunch of teams that we're a full-fledged American high school. We have American football. We have basketball, wrestling. We have it all. We have to schedule buses. You only have, I think, two buses for long haul. So usually we have two teams on the road and a couple teams at home. And (laughs) it's like a puzzle.
1: Yeah, it's great to talk to Mark Lang, courtesy of John Mayer, a longtime friend to the association. And, I, you know, you mentioned the puzzle because I got to believe all of a sudden you're rolling along and you've got some superstars and boom, their mom or dad are transferred and you got to fill those holes, right? I mean, you're very much like a college football coach, right? Where players leaving all the time and you got to fill them in? They leave all the time. And then, you know, we joke about it sometimes because it's called
4: the Freedom Bird. And so it comes in on Fridays. So it leaves from Seattle, goes to Misawa Air Force Base, Yokota, then us, and then Okinawa. And so we're waiting for uh, whoever gets off that bird. Maybe someone will show up. Uh, (laughs) And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And you just have to do, you know, it's kind of like being a high school coach in the States in a sense that you don't get to choose who comes to your school. But the tough part is if you're a high school coach in the States, you'll have a kid for four years, and we don't. And so it just really depends. You have to have a system that kids can uh, feel like they're part of. And you have to make kids feel like they're part of something
1: bigger than themselves. And if they do that, then it's good. From your heart, from your core, when you think about what you're doing and I can tell that you love it. I know you're over in the United States right now, enjoying some vacation time at a family home up in Asheville, North Carolina, which is awesome, but you'll be heading back there. But you know, from your heart, what does it mean to do what you do over in Japan? I feel like I'm serving my country because
4: military kids deserve the best they can get. They really do. Without schools there, uh, families wouldn't be able to be there. And then, of course, when you don't have families there, they're broken up. It makes life very difficult. So I feel honored to do what I do and blessed to do what I do. My wife reminds me of that all the time. I remember uh, early at my school, I have perfected every losing speech ever known to man. I can probably catalog them. <laughs> and i, I was a club coach in the states and i want to help one of my teams want to stay championship at the under 15 level i coach high school soccer successful and in 2007 i walked in i said boys i'm done i've taught you everything i can do it must be me i can't do anything here and i went home and told my wife and she got in my face and she said you did what you're going back tomorrow and you're going to unquit because i like being married i had to do that so of course <laughs> And actually, that was great because uh, from 2010 on to 2019, 2020, before COVID, we won six out of seven state championships. It's our version of the state championship. So we do have a state championship tournament, and it's called the Far East. And so we have three high school teams in Korea, and we have two high school teams in Okinawa, Japan, and then our six schools. And so we have two classifications, Class A and Class Double A. And we're a small school. We have these tournaments and international schools join in. And so it's it's pretty intense. And then it's in Okinawa, we get to fly there. And so flying on a plane with high school kids is very interesting. <laughs> and truly, really, it's just fantastic to move around and, and, and ex, you know, expose kids to different countries and different
1: ways of doing things. Similar question in your heart, in your core, particularly knowing that you've now had nine of your athletes recognized when you hear these three words, United soccer coaches, what does that mean to you? It means I'm part of something bigger than myself. I'm very,
4: very proud to be a member. I have encouraged other coaches to become members. The girls coach at our school, he joined this year. We have a guy at Yokosuka Navy base at C. Kinnick high school. He's been a member. Nico has been a member for a few years. We take this very seriously. For example, one of the first things I tell my kids is that, Hey, you know that uh, team academic award? We're winning that. Okay. We're winning that. We're working towards that. That's a goal every year. I think his team has been recognized seven or eight straight times. I think mine is going to be hopefully seven this year in a row. So we're, we're excited about that. And then when we share that information with our district leadership and our PAC East leadership, they're like, what? You're a member of how come other teams, the others, you know, programs don't have this kind of organization to be part of? And I just shake my head. I said, well, I'm doing what I do. That's what I do. And so, yeah, I'm honored to be a member of this organization. It's fantastic.
1: So glad to hear it. I feel like this audience for the United Soccer Coaches podcast continues to grow just like the membership. And there might be a young coach out there that is hearing this interview and saying, wow, I didn't even know I could do that. But I would love to do that. And they might even be saying, you know what? I have a spouse that is also in the military. So maybe I can tie it in. You just never know. Like if people had more questions about it, or they wanted to follow you or email you? What are you comfortable with letting people know if they want to learn more about what you're doing, Mark? They can certainly have my email. I'm happy to
4: answer any questions. I'm happy to encourage young coaches. I'm happy to answer questions. A lot of times we have active duty military folks who come up to me and say, hey, I used to play soccer in high school or so and so and Can I help coach the team? And I'm always looking for people to help because I think the more people you have when you're when you have a program, it's just beneficial to kids. My email is Gaku Kai. My son's name's G A K U K A I at Mac, M-A-C.com. One of those original Apple people, you know?
1: So what can I say? <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. And you know what? John Mayer said that I would enjoy this and uh, he underestimated it. I beyond enjoyed it. You're awesome, Mark. I love what you're doing over there. And I'm so glad that your wife made you unquit and then you went back to win six or seven more titles. That's what you do. And keep making sure that you get those athletes recognized through John Mayer and Steve Veal and all the great folks at United Soccer coaches, and on behalf of the entire association, I bow down to you. Thank you so much for what you're doing over in Japan.
4: And thank you so much
1: for supporting our programs and our
4: kids and military connected kids. We really
1: appreciate it. We appreciate you, Mark, and want to thank John Mayer for bringing you forward. Talk about bringing somebody forward. Ashu Saksuena, who is the head of the API coaching community for United Soccer coaches, continues to bring incredible guests forward. That's no different with our next guest, Cab Hakim from Futsal America is on after these messages.
0: Does it feel like all you're doing to manage your team, club or league is busy work? If so, League Apps can help you get back to doing what you love. Delivering a powerful yet simple youth sports management platform from robust registration and payment tools to automated communications and other software integrations. League Apps saves you time and headaches. Less busy work, more time doing what you love. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches podcast.
1: Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Lee Gaps. And let me say in quotes, welcome to Futsal America, where players are known for good first touch, fast footwork, creative play, and a passion for the game. Futsal America began in 1989 in Washington, D.C., where the concept of futsal was applied to outdoor soccer training. Originally, this was called, quote, Brazilian soccer, end quote, where players trained in their bare feet with a tennis ball. Today, it is a program that can be shared anywhere in the world. Futsal America rebranded in 2015, previously Dozens of youth teams such as the Independence, Eclipse, Majestic, Samba, and Fire have followed the Futsal America program. Clubs from D.C., Virginia, and Maryland have benefited from the methodology created 27 years ago as more than 200 players have gone on to play college and professional soccer, and many continue to serve the game as coaches. Players are nurtured through a curriculum of environments that range from futsal, beach soccer, freestyle soccer, street soccer, and everything from 1v1 to 11v11. Music plays a part in their program as well. They create an atmosphere to develop a rhythm, express their skills, and enjoy the ball. Such methods hone creativity in the player that one day can be a global model for player development. It is their mission to build a culture that will inspire the player to lead with their own imagination and originality. They ask players to decide what kind of player they want to be and then be it in every game. Futsal America embraces the fact that America is a land of opportunity where dreams can come true. They dare players to dream and show them pathways to reach their goals. American culture is a melting pot of diverse ideas. It is a hip-hop culture, and Futsal America plays futsal and soccer the American way. This is Futsal America, and here to put an exclamation point on it is their director and one of their leaders of Futsal America Cab Hakeem. Cab Hakeem, welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast.
5: Thank you for having me. very honored to be here.
1: I'm looking at your website and even some of the benefits of Futsal America. I see fun and culture and friendships for life and building a community. That's kind of what you're all about, isn't it?
5: 100% since I came to America, one of the key issues in developing young players was their love for the game. Very often we see kids play up until they're 18, then they go to college and they stop. And you have to ask, well, why would you spend every weekend of your life from age six, seven, eight, playing soccer, training throughout the week, playing year round? And then by 18, you quit. And I think it's because they just didn't love the game. They didn't love the ball. If you ask a kid, you know, what do you do at home to practice? Not many of them are going to say, well, I juggle the ball because... They just want to play. They don't want to be coached. They don't want to be taught things. They just want to play with their friends. So when they're not playing with their friends anymore, they stop. So the fun aspect of it is key. You can call it futsal, soccer, whatever you want to call it. At the end of the day, the ball is the toy. Futsal is just a game, but the ball is the toy. And unless you treat the ball like a toy, you're not going to have fun unless you win your game. So the pleasure that kids get in a team setting is when they win. So what we wanted to to basically do was take away that aspect of, well, you got to win to play well, to be considered good. Just have fun with the ball. Whether you win or lose or draw or whatever, you're ready to play again because you love it and you want to do it and you want to try things and you're not afraid anymore because fear is the biggest prohibition of developing a player or team. Futsal is is one of the methods that will bring out what some people call talent. I call personality. We want personality on the ball. Before
1: we get more into Futsal America, I do want to understand your journey. What have you done and and when did you start uh, working with Futsal America?
5: I've been here 33 years. I'm, I'm born and bred in England. Half my family on my mother's side is American. So I've been coming here since I was actually nine years old. So my first experience with America and American soccer was the old NASL. I saw the Washington Diplomats. I saw Johan Cruyff play for the Diplomats. I saw uh, Beckenbauer play for the Cosmos. So America and American soccer has always excited me since I was a kid. Most people come to America, they're excited. Oh, I want to go to Disneyland or something like that as a kid. Me, I wanted to see... American cartoons, and watch American soccer life. Through my family, I got exposed to America. And when I was old enough to then make that decision to come myself, I came, did my uh, college degree here. And within two weeks of being here, they asked me to start a women's soccer program at Harvard University. And it turned out to be the first and only African-American women's college program in the entire country. Now, coming from England at that time, I'd never even seen a girl kick a ball. So, when you asked me, Oh, here's a women's team that we want to start at Howard, would you be the head coach? I was like, Yeah, sure. Let me uh, see what you got, you know, because I've never seen a girl play. So, yeah, I saw 20 girls. And of course, you know, typical in America, no offense, all athletes. I was like, Okay. If I can help develop these women, then they got a chance because they already had what you can't teach, which is athleticism. So I said, if they can control the ball, pass a ball, dribble a the ball, they can play. So I, I agreed to do the job and that started the journey. What I discovered very quickly being here was that everything was geared about being a team and not a player. And that was disturbing for me because in England, we grew up the other way. At the top level, the professional level, of course, I grew up watching Liverpool home and away, so I got to see the best football in the world and the best players every week. Liverpool is completely different to the rest of England. You know, it's it's high-quality football, control, pass and dribble. So when I come here, I'm just seeing kids kick and run, you know, literally just kick the ball and run after it as fast as they can. And I'm like, wow, this is like watching Stoke, you know, everywhere. It's like... I thought America was better than that because when I first came, I saw foreign players play, right? I saw Cruyff and Beckenbauer. I was like, wow, America is going to be the best in the world one day. So when I saw these college players and, and I'm watching, obviously, women's soccer, I'm seeing a lot of athletes, but I'm not seeing a lot of skill. So that was my first experience. And of course, then I became an assistant with the men. And the men's team at Howard was, you know, top 10 in the country. They'd just been in the NCAA final. They got players now going to to England to play in the Premier League. So they're high standard. But again, majority of that squad was international, from the Caribbean, from Africa, and so on. So I'm going around the city now, and I'm being asked to coach clinics and youth programs and stuff. And I'm watching all these American kids, and I'm like, wow. Look at all these athletes there. I mean... You know, I, I come from a hotbed of football and there wasn't this many athletes in one area that I could say, yeah, those guys are going to be, you know, professional players. And I'm looking at all these American kids and I'm like, you know, they can all run fast. But how many of them can control the ball? So the measure of a player, in my view, is how you can play under pressure, how you master the ball under pressure. How you manipulate the ball. It's not just about physical speed. It's technical speed, tactical speed, as well as physical. Kids in the inner city, the, the underserved kids, these were the closest mentalities to English players because English players play with passion. will run all day. When you say, okay, practice is over, most of the team will keep, you know, they'll be shooting on goal. They'll be taking each other on. You call it World Cup. We call it Wembley. Yeah. And that means one person goes in goal and everyone's shooting on the goal. When you score, you go through to the next round. Last man standing is eliminated and you just keep going on for hours. We did that every day in England. That wasn't something that was made as a training session. I'm seeing all these inner city kids in the summertime. If I take just 20 of these kids, it was about 80 of them. If I take just 20 of these kids, I could win a World Cup, mm-hmm. a real World Cup for America, because athletically, they were as good as anything in the world. They were as fast as anything in the world that I've seen, and I've been everywhere. So I was like, all they need is skills, proper technical skills. So this is why we we didn't have a formal name for it back then, which was futsal. I just said, look, I'm going to develop you the way the best players in the world develop, and the best players in the world to this day are from Brazil, technically speaking you know, in terms of their flamboyance with the ball. I didn't grow up watching Pele, but I grew up watching Zico, Edé, Socrates, Junior. Those were the players. I saw them live, you know, at Wembley, and they took England apart. That same year, Flamengo destroyed Liverpool in Tokyo in the the World Club final. And we have never been embarrassed like that. I mean, literally embarrassed on the pitch. What is the reason for that? And there's only one, and that is street football, street soccer. And so we didn't call it futsal. We called it Brazilian soccer, which was basically nobody in Brazil grew up with, you know, $200, $100, whatever, $50 boots. We grew up with whatever's on your feet. In England, we, we literally play with a tennis ball on the playground, on cement, every day, kicking a ball against a brick wall, a tennis ball against a brick wall, in our school shoes. So I said, well, if it's good enough for the Brazilians, it's good enough for these American kids. So we put them on a basketball court because there's no futsal courts back then. And every morning, 8.30 every morning, all these kids would show up and we'd just throw out a tennis ball because there wasn't any futsal balls back then. And we'd just, hey, Brazilian soccer and every man for himself. And it was unbelievable. They loved it. I would get there. 8.15, 8.20, 8.15, 8.20, thinking I'm getting there 10 minutes early. And there's 15 of them on the court already playing before I even get there. And I knew then that was as English as it was going to get in terms of how I grew up. And that's the difference to the formal structured club system in America where everything is scheduled and everything is structured and a coach has to organise everybody and give everybody a penny or whatever and position. No, we didn't do any of that if we just let the kids destroy each other 1v1, one, one, 1 against 10, and you basically it was survival of the fittest. And bear in mind, these kids were aged 4 to 8 years old. So from that group of 20 kids, out of the 80 that came to our first summer camp, all of them graduated on to, to college and played college soccer. All of them went through at that time travel soccer. We, we eventually put them in travel soccer, and then got selected for ODP at state, regional, national level, which was the top identification system at that time. The context is, if you can do that with 20 kids from a poor neighborhood, you could do that with 20 kids anywhere in the world. Mm. And to prove, because we invested 10 years into those kids, to prove that they weren't just good in America or in DC and then America, I took them to Europe and I took them on an unprecedented tour to play Liverpool and Chelsea and West Ham and Ajax and the best academies in Europe. And it's the first ever American team in history to beat an English full time Premier League academy. And they beat Chelsea under 19s, 3 1. These are players who went on to play in the Premier League and in the English Professional League. And these kids from D.C. beat them. And Steve Clark, who was the academy director at the time, who was uh, Jose Mourinho's assistant, said, I asked him, how many of them would you take at Chelsea? He said, I'd take every one of them. That's and, awesome. But why he couldn't take them, and this is the, the, the indictment of the American system, was they weren't national team, full national team players, because the stipulation to get a work permit in England is that you have to play for the U.S. national team for two years consecutively to qualify. And even though they had been picked, you know, national youth team, they weren't on national senior team at 16, 17, obviously. Uh, so they wouldn't qualify for the for the work permit. But that was the only issue. Quality-wise, they were better than what Chelsea had, they were better than what West Ham had in most cases. And I call them the American Ajax generation, because I also spent four years in Holland and, and learned the Dutch system. And everyone thought that it was the Ajax system and the Dutch system that developed those players. What they didn't understand this. All those players that won the Champions League for Ajax in '95 were from the streets of Amsterdam. So just like these kids in D.C., those kids in Amsterdam, Brian Roy, Dennis Bergkamp, Breitkart, Seedorf, Davids, Klaubert, all these players grew up as one generation of kids from the streets of Amsterdam and then were picked for the formal play of Ajax and then, of course, dominated. But since that generation, Ajax has never had a team like that since. Why? Because now they weren't picking kids from the streets. They were picking kids from formal pay-to-play academies and systems that don't work. I'm giving you all this history and context just to explain that Academies don't work. Formal environments don't work. What develops a player is a player-centric program, which means you have to have players who love the ball, who suffer and are desperate to succeed. It's not about whether your team wins. It's about how many players in your team you can elevate forward. So you have to create an environment for them to have fun with the ball, where it's not a formal practice, where they just control and pass in triangles or diamonds or whatever you want to, but can actually break down low block
1: defenses. We're here with Cab Hakeem, who is a director for Futsal America, where the ball is the toy. How does Futsal America work? Is it just in DC? Is it all over the place? How do teams play each other? How's it work?
5: From those days, I mean, which is why I was just giving the context of, of, of the history of where we started. We said, well, if we can do this, in, in, a, in a city environment of D.C., you can do this anywhere. So then I took it to, to Virginia and Maryland, and I started. You already read the list of names of teams and clubs uh, who got to experience this program, which is a methodology, Yeah, which is just so you have the Coover program, for example, and they'll give you 20 different moves to work on. Well, we have 60 different moves that you can develop. And then 30 different juggling tricks, which are more like freestyle tricks. So basically, all it is, is we took this concept of Brazilian soccer, called it Futsal America, because futsal, to me, means street. So futsal represents a street culture. So what we did was, all right, let's see now if we can expand this program to other parts of the DMV. and. We had the same success. We had kids then who made national team and won national championships. We had kids who went to play pro, who are now coaches in college or high school, whatever. And we realized that, again, what is it? It's just having a love for the ball. So yes, we're based in DC, but especially during the COVID era where everyone was on Zoom, we were able to share the program through the internet to other places. So we've had a group in LA, a group in Tennessee, a group in Arizona. Other coaches have asked me, how can we build our own futsal culture? I said, well, just follow these methods. we're, we're We're no secret here. Everything we do is on the internet. We got hundreds of videos, hundreds of training sessions and things that you can just watch and say, oh, okay. That's how you do this move. That's how you apply it in the game. So it's a a shared skills program.
1: Let's share the website, social media. Like where can people learn more about what's going on at Futsal America? What's the website? Where can they follow you on social media, Cab?
5: So the best place is is YouTube, uh, Futsal America TV. That's the channel. Because there you'll get all the visuals. Yeah. If you want to just read the background, you read a, a large part of it you can go to Futsal America FC, F as in Frank, C as in club. But yeah, Futsal America TV on YouTube is is the best place to go.
1: All right. I want to cross promote as well as you did a great job talking about your journey, talking about how Futsal America was founded and how it continues to make players better. And I totally agree with the concept of loving the ball and Futsal truly does it. You know, before we went on the air, you mentioned Anson Dorrance, you know, particularly tied to a shoe who is the head of the API community for United soccer coaches. You clearly mentioned your English, but you know, look at your name, Cab Hakeem. Can you tell us your ethnicity and how you got connected with the API coaching community for United Soccer Coaches?
5: My dad was born in India. My mother's American with Pakistani heritage as well. In America, people think Asians are mainly from the Orient, from China, Japan, Korea, that type of thing, but they actually Asia includes. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and so on. So the API has embraced the entire Asian culture and started a group that recognizes cultures of Asian descent, which I'm very proud to be a part of and honored and thank Ashu very kindly for thinking of me. They have grown in the past year under Ashu to represent people like Anson Dorrance, who's a legend, from North Carolina, and the U.S. national team, obviously, won the first women's World Cup. And even with him, Hank Long. You know, Hank Long won the NCAA national championship with George Mason, great friend of mine, absolute legend. This is a guy who picked me a ham at 15 for the national team, and he was the first guy to be the national head coach for the U.S. women and the director of ODP for the country at the mm-hmm. same time. So you've got two American coaches of Asian descent there who've started this history, certainly mm-hmm. at the women's level. And we have many more, of course both genders
1: make sure people check out futsal america by going to futsal america fc just like he said just one final line on the api coaching community just what it means to be a part of it
5: yeah it's great i mean i'm I'm probably one of the first british asian subjects if you like to come to america start a college soccer program and pioneer different pathways for kids of all ages and, and genders and and cultures, multicultural, subcultures, and be part of a, a growing community now of next generation Asian Americans and people of Asian descent period, who are working here, living here, have families here, and are involved in their own soccer communities and doing the same kind of stuff, You know, starting leagues and tournaments and clubs and, and all these different skills programs. And it just shows how diverse United States is to have all of this. I'm I'm proud to be part of a generation of coaches who've been around and are new in the game as well, but are contributing in, in big ways. It's an honor.
1: Well, it's an honor to have you on. I'm so glad shoe pushed you forward. Cab Hakeem with Futsal America and also a member of the API Coaches Community for United Soccer Coaches. Cab, as we close it out, I know something that was important to you. Ironically, just last week, we had Mike Curry kick off our Juneteenth celebration. And one of the things he said as one of the leaders of the black soccer coaches, longtime leaders of their advocacy group before Nicole Hercules and a couple others took over, is to find the the best players. Futsal America is going to help. That's important to you, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, Futsal America is not a club. It's a methodology, right? It's a skills program to develop world-class skills. You can't develop a world-class player because that's an inherent thing, right? So that's a personality thing. You have to go to a, a struggle, You have to go through desperation and suffering. So you look at all the best players in the world. Anybody can be good. Anybody can be good through hard work at something. So you can take anybody from any level and make them a good athlete and a good player. But to make a world-class player, that's what America has been missing in the 30 years that I've been here. I've seen Hugo Perez. I've seen Bruce Murray. I've seen... Clint Dempsey, Landon Donovan, and now Pellusic, but you can't really call any of them world-class. And the question is why? And one of the things that we wanted to do with Futsal America is show that you can take any player from any environment and nurture them to have world-class skills. If you think a nutmeg or controlling the ball with the outside of your foot or flicking the ball over somebody's head using your heel, cutting left and then going back right and then bending the ball around somebody. These are world-class skills that are not taught in any conventional way in training sessions. And and so what we wanted is for futsal to be a street soccer methodology for all Americans to develop world-class skills. How they evolve as players is a journey, yeah? So that's an inherent experience. But we wanted players to use the ball as a toy to have fun so that we develop. An American Ronaldinho, Messi, Neymar, Pele. And the closest we've had is Freddie Adu. But it didn't pan out for whatever reason. But I believe, like you said with Mike Curry, USA will win a World Cup one day on the men's side. But to do that, it can't just be a well organized, efficient team. It has to be a team that has world class players in beyond the goalkeeper. And that's the key. And so I would love it if we develop a culture, city by city, state by state, of nurturing world-class skills in our players so that they move on to become world-class players as you put them in those professional environments. I get the feeling if
1: Cab Akeem has his way, he'll help make that happen. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, sharing what you do with Futsal America, and sharing your ties to the API coaches community and us who really appreciate it, Cab. A delight.
5: My honor. Thank you.
1: Good stuff on a jam-packed show. We're not done. We meet another 30 Under 30 member, Kamen Stevens, after this message. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. favorite part of the show. We meet another outstanding member of our amazing 30 under 30 class for United Soccer Coaches. No different today as we meet Kaman Stevens. Kamen, welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it, Dean. Yeah. So Kamen, tell us where you are dialing in from right now and what your current job is.
6: So I'm out in beautiful Napa, California, currently head of girls soccer for Napa Net out there director of their Girls Academy program.
1: That's pretty legit. That is one of the best places to live, yeah. not only in the country, but in the world. Is that where you grew up? How did you end up out there?
6: Oh, well, I actually just moved out here very end of October. Uh, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Played soccer there for the Rapids youth team. Colorado a rush there growing up. Went to school University of Colorado Boulder. Coaching in Denver for the last seven, or I guess Colorado in the last seven, eight years. We just had the opportunity to move out to Napa, but been pretty fortunate to coach in some pretty beautiful places such as Boulder, Denver, and now Napa.
1: Yeah, you're definitely hitting me right in my heart. I was the original voice of the Colorado Rapids and lived in Evergreen, Colorado, and we still visit there every year. So Rapids, Rush, I mean, amazing teams. Who were some key coaches along the way? Because I probably know some of them.
6: Probably when I was at Rush and then I also did like their this morning soccer program called the Center. Um, But this is coach Eric Boucher, who is definitely one of my favorites and he still co- now he coaches at the Rapids, which is pretty awesome, but he was one of my coaches there that I think is definitely one of my favorites.
1: Who are some other people along the way that kind of made you say, hmm, I'd like to do what he or she
6: does. I'd like to be a coach. Honestly, all the coaches I had, for me, the reason I really enjoyed or wanted to go into coaching was when I was a player. I was one of those annoying players that kind of try to break a training session with the coach. I try to figure out like loop roles around, around the types of the games. And just, I learned from my good coaches, learned from coaches they didn't like so much, things that resonated to me and took all those and just ran with it once I started coaching.
1: All right. I like that you decided to go to the University of Colorado Boulder. I have incredible memories. This was before you were born, but when I interned with U.S. Soccer in 89, that is back when they had Bill McCartney and were making runs of the national championship, and we'd go to their football games and you know, they had McGee and Williams on one side and they had Al niece you know, the quarterback that ended up dying of cancer and Eric, the I mean, they were absolutely loaded, but they didn't have a soccer program. So clearly when you went to college, you decided you weren't going to play collegiate soccer. Did you uh, major in it at
6: Colorado Boulder? Loved going to Boulder. Definitely. was hard to s- decide not to play soccer there. Um, I ended up getting my major in strategic advertising with the emphasis in business and sports. So, did that, but then I was also coaching all throughout college as well. So, got a major, but still stayed involved in soccer as much as I could, which is pretty much my goal.
1: So, what clubs were you coaching for during your time in college?
6: Um, yeah, so I started coaching right when I got there freshman year for FC Boulder. Um, they're now, I think, Boulder County United, um, but it's like a large competitive youth team out there. So, um, fortunate enough to get the opportunity to coach them and coach them for about four or five years throughout my college experience. And then coach for the men's, CU men's club team too, after graduating, which is pretty great. So being around that Boulder area.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So I mentioned to you, I was the first ever voice of the Colorado Rapids back, you know, Marcelo Balboa was on the team. We went from worse. We were terrible in our first year and the second year, you probably weren't even born yet, but we made it all the way to MLS cup. And I still keep in touch with Marcelo Balboa, Steve Trichu, Paul Bravo, Marcus Hahnemann, David Patino. That team was really good. Adrian Paz, Chris Henderson. Really, really good team. Did you uh, spend any time going to Rapids games, coach?
6: Yeah, pretty much the last three years I've had season tickets to them. Then growing up, I always went to the games. I loved it. My brother played for the academy system throughout his entire career there. So I was always around the games, watching them. A few good years that definitely made up for some of the other ones, but definitely some super cool experiences and definitely it's cool seeing Marcella Balboa still involved with the program now with the, their MLS next teams and everything. and he's kind of a pretty iconic figure within the rapist history there.
1: Oh, absolutely. He's a legend who like me, you know, fell in love with Colorado, but like yeah. you said, you went from one beautiful part of the country to even a, maybe even a more beautiful part of the country. So how did you find out about this job in Napa? Had you been to Napa before? I love going out there with my wife. It's incredible. I mean, you're living the
6: dream right now, young man. Yeah, no, I definitely am. Dream just to have my full-time job being coaching soccer and then to live in a beautiful place is just a bonus. But I um, actually found, applied for this job through United Soccer Coaches um, on their job postings there. Never been to Napa, never lived outside of Colorado, but I was looking for the next step in my career and trying to like, get as much responsibility as I could early on in my career. And I liked what the job posting was. Interviewed, went through a few different rounds of that, flew out there to meet the entire staff, loved it. And then pretty much it was a quick two, three-week process, and I decided I was moving out to Napa. So super excited, but moved here for the job and been loving it since.
1: Well, it's interesting. You mentioned you're coaching girls. Of course, the USA is a power in women's soccer. And if you look at the roster over the years, ton of players come from the state of California. So clearly California produces juggernauts. I mean, both boys and girls. But when did you make the transition to coaching girls and how much do you enjoy that?
6: Yeah. So I've always coached boys and girls um, over the last few years. Love coaching them both. And for me, I ended up kind of finding my nature, really enjoying girls soccer and coaching them just because a huge opportunity there especially when you're coaching at the youth club youth academy level as a lot of the top level coaches get pulled over to the boys side just to them having the mls next and all the different avenues a huge opportunity to have an impact on players which is what i really enjoy being able to impact as many girls as many players as many teams as possible and making their experience and giving them opportunities to play at high level um so i just found on the girls side i can do more of that um so i really enjoyed that so i kind of Turned into that and just kind of been running with it. Kamen, we really like memories and mentors. We like dropping names on this
1: show. When you think about your career in soccer at any level, what's your greatest memory being involved
6: in the sport? Yeah, it actually happened this past February. So it was at a President's Day tournament out in Phoenix. Um, So backstory to this was the team I was coaching at the Rapids when I left in October, uh, 2009 girls team. Fantastic. Huge personalities. I love them. Ended on a fantastic note last week in there won a tournament had a good little going away party and then January of this year I started coaching the 2009 girls team at Napa United as I needed to coach never coached a game with them yet we're going to those tournaments two weeks before they released the schedule and my very first game with my new team I was playing my old Rapids team oh wow yeah so super exciting there um so the first game so it's kind of a cool experience itself we were fortunate to tie the game in five seconds left but overall I think it was one of my favorite memories, just because I found myself enjoying the game every single part of it the entire aspect of it I was connected to all 22 players on the field the other the opposing coach was my old boss like it was just looking back on it too I think just a unique and rare experience to have that so definitely one of my favorite memories I've had not just playing but in soccer overall great memory great story so glad you
1: shared it as well and you mentioned, you know, your former coach, when you think about mentors, you know, who are some names that have impacted your life and maybe it doesn't even have to be coaches. Maybe it's family members, but
6: people that you definitely credit for some of your great success here at a young age. By far, it would be Nick Blanco. Um, he was my director at the Colorado Rapids for like the three plus years I was working there. Just instrumental in my career and just growth as a person. Literally not enough I can say about him, but for him as a coach, like, his passion was unmatched. He loves supporting me. He loves supporting all of his other coaches. And he pushed me and helped me get to coaching full-time. So like I mentioned earlier, it's the greatest job on earth. And he definitely helped me get here faster. So Nick Blanco there. And then Gavin Taylor, my new current boss here, he trusted me. He gave me this great opportunity. And he's kind of invested in me 100% since coming here. And just another person who's obsessed with the game, sharing that knowledge and wanting to spread that to others. Both those individuals have just been giving me the keys to success, um, hopefully grow my career here.
1: Tell me about your family as well. Growing up, uh, you know, what's your mom and dad do? Where, are they still in Colorado? Tell me about brothers and sisters in the, 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 Cayman Stevens
6: family. Yeah. My dad still lives in Colorado. My little sister plays right now at university of Pacific out here in California. My brother now lives in LA, but he played for men, the men's team at Santa Clara university. So big soccer family overall. I was the last sibling to get out here to California, which is funny. So I followed my two younger siblings out here, essentially, to California, which is exciting. But we still all go back to Colorado during holidays. Yeah, overall, it's all sports. 90% of it's always soccer, whether it's talking, texting, phone calls. At holidays, it's always about soccer. So so pretty
1: pretty great. I'm so pleased to hear you dropped a little tidbit on the fact that you learned about the job through United Soccer Coaches. That's a big initiative for Jeff Van Dusen for – United Soccer Coaches to become even a bigger resource to find jobs, not just posting jobs, but help people find the right job. As you think about your young career, what has United Soccer Coaches meant
6: to your development and what does it mean to be part of this 30 under 30 class? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely helped my development a ton. beyond just the job postings. Um, they just have so much content on the actual website itself for coaches of any level, which you can always pull from, which I enjoy. And then the program just how much opportunity it gave us to either connect with other coaches, young coaches who are kind of experiencing the same thing in different parts of the country, getting to go to the convention, be a part of it, getting to network of coaches who coach college or high school or different realms I do just kind of making me a well-rounded holistic coach just because I'm getting this exposure to other people that I wouldn't have out United as soccer coaches or the 30 under 30 program. So it's just been super exciting, especially these last four months being a part of it um, and meeting all these different coaches.
1: If you've listened to my interviews with some of your other members of the 30 under 30 class, I always sort of end with that crystal ball question and you have already had a great career, but do you have any idea where you want to be 10, 15 years from now and what you want to be doing? Oh yeah. I have a big
6: checklist there, but when I see myself in 10 years, I want to have my USSF, a pro license. I want to be involved in my UEFA licenses and involved in the Federation in general, whether it's as a youth scouts or work at the youth national teams. as I mentioned, I'm a big fan of just, information and education. So I want to lead diplomas for United soccer coaches coaches or licenses for the USSF. And then coaching-wise, I want to be involved um, at the highest level possible. So whether that's MLS, MLS Next Pro within their systems, um, or working at the NWSL, where hopefully those teams will have to get girls' academy systems by that point with them and the WPSL growing so much.
1: Interesting name, Cayman. In. What can you tell me about uh, where that name came
6: from? Yeah. So my dad's name was John Henry Stevens, the fourth. So he hated his name growing up. Everyone he knew was John, whether it was in his family or outside his family. So for me, my brother, he went as rare as you can find. So I got came in my brother, he got his name Tennyson. So just trying to be opposite of John Henry Stevens, the fifth.
1: All right. Very good. As we end, when you hear these three words, just uh, put into your own words, what it means to you. And those three words we've kind of touched on them. We've said it a lot are
6: simply United Soccer Coaches. Resources and opportunity, they can provide you as much as you want, which is super exciting.
1: Cayman Stevens, great interview, living the life out in Napa, after living the life in Colorado. I'm envious, man, that sounds really awesome. Good luck to you in your new job, and good luck to you as you look to hit your aspirations down the road. Really enjoyed this interview. Really appreciate it, Dean, thanks for having me. Wanna thank Cayman and all of our great guests today, as well as Bailey Conklin, Brandon Milburn, Erica Dyer, Jeff Van Dusen, and the entire crew at United Soccer Coaches, our producer, Colin Thrash, and each and every one of you, our great members of the United Soccer Coaches. I'm Dean Linky. We'll see you next week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps.
0: Thanks for listening to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. To learn more about League Apps, find them at leagueapps.com or as League Apps on all of the social networks. And to learn more about United Soccer Coaches, visit us at unitedsoccercoaches.org.